The world is now noisier than ever. If you are listening to this podcast and therefore have access to the internet, you probably encounter more new ideas in a week than some of your ancestors will have encountered in a year. And if you use social media regularly, the amount of information, some of it useful, some of it useless, hitting your brain each day can be colossal. Worldwide, the average internet user spends two and a half hours a day on social networks. That is a lot of noise. I'm Suleiman Hakimi, opinion editor at the National Newspaper in Abu Dhabi, and a big part of my job is finding signal in all that noise and identifying the big ideas shaping our future. In this limited series of the recorded podcast, I decided to explore some of these big ideas in the realms of media and business strategy, public opinion, and space science. Over the course of 2023, I had the chance to sit down here in Abu Dhabi with three international thought leaders from these fields who brought fresh insights to the table and spoke to me about how these ideas impact the world and the Middle East. In the first episode, I speak to Raju Narasetti, publishing director at the renowned global consulting firm McKinsey. Raju has more than three decades of experience in the media industry, working with the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and News Corp, among other publications. As journalism underwent a monumental shift into the digital era, Raju was one of the people helping to lead the way. In this interview, he talked about the business of journalism, the profitability of the media landscape, internet access in different regions of the world, and how technology will continue to transform the industry. But before we start, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and check out all the other episodes of this series. I think... With you coming from McKinsey, I mean, McKinsey's one of those names you hear a lot in this part of the world. They have such an outsized influence. So I, I think if you haven't had a chance to get out here much before, you should definitely take advantage and try and get out here more in the future. I mean, I, I wonder if you could start just by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I've been in media for about 35 years now, started off as a reporter in India for the Economic Times. I decided I need to study journalism a bit more and then went to the U.S. to do my master's. This was in 1990. I'm aging myself. And then ended up, I was a summer intern for the Wall Street Journal and then ended up 15 years with them, reporter, editor. And my last role at that time was the editor of Europe, Middle East, and Africa, though it was based out of Brussels. And then quit in 2006 to moved to India to launch a business paper called Mint, which is now still India's second largest business paper. And then 2009, moved back to the U.S. I was the first outside managing editor that the Washington Post ever hired. And the mandate was to combine the print and online operations. They were separate companies. They were in separate states. So create a single entity. Um, did that, and then my old organization, the Wall Street Journal, came calling. So I went back to the journal to run all of Wall Street Journal Digital. And then Rupert Murdoch, who owned the journal, decided to split back then News Corp into two separate companies. One became Fox, and the other became News Corp. So then I moved to a corporate role. I became senior vice president of strategy uh, for News Corp. Did a lot of... Um, acquisitions uh, created. Most people don't know this, but News Corp today is one of the world's largest digital real estate listings business. So we built all of that through acquisitions at that time. And then went back into journalism, the CEO of a, a digital company called the Gizmodo Media Group, 
which had a lot of interesting sites, the Onion Route, Gizmodo, Jalopnik, Jezebel. It was owned by a Spanish TV company called Univision. Um, and then, clearly, I couldn't keep a job or something. I ended up teaching at the Columbia Journalism School, where I taught the business of journalism, ran some fellowship programs. And then McKinsey reached out about four years ago, uh, asking if I'd be interested in applying all of the news side of things to the B2B publishing side at McKinsey. So I've been there for about four years now. I head up global publishing. Most people may not know this, but uh, McKinsey is the, is the inventor of this idea of thought leadership. Uh, they began the McKinsey quarterly about 58 years ago. We don't call it thought leadership inside McKinsey, but uh, everybody else calls it that. And it's a fairly large publishing enterprise. The idea is that if you put out good business ideas, it's good for the world and also good for McKinsey. And so we've been doing that through the quarterly still exists in print, but most of the publishing is through our website, McKinsey.com. We have 45 different email newsletters, a pretty large active email followership, and then the rest, podcasts, video, social media, aimed at a very business global audience who are comfortable in engaging in English. We mostly publish in English, though we do have an Arabic newsletter now, started about a year ago. And on a range, I mean, there's not a business topic where you wouldn't probably find McKinsey Publishing. A lot of first-party data. We have a 30,000-strong survey panel. So we actually ask them a lot of questions. It's not newsy in the sense that we don't talk about what's happening in the world of news, but we often talk about, you know, when a pandemic happened, how are you dealing with supply chains? And having this panel talk to us about it meant that you actually create a lot of news out of what's happening. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned that you taught the business of journalism at Columbia. I'm Out of curiosity, because I feel like in journalism, we spend a lot of time trying to pretend to readers that there is no business of journalism and it's really just about finding the news, reporting the news. What is the business of journalism? Well, before I answer that, I think most people may know this or not, but the edifice of journalism historically has been based on this notion of church and state. Depending on who you ask, they'll say they are church versus state. But the idea was that to keep the news gathering and the journalism separate and independent from the business operations of media. And I think that's a structurally a good concept because the idea is that you don't want to have business decisions influence your journalism. Unfortunately, over time, church and state has by and large become church versus state, built up a lot of tension, a lot of misunderstanding. Most journalists actually grew up not caring about the business side, which I think is a big mistake because end of the day, if, if journalism is the product, but if the product doesn't sell or doesn't generate enough revenue, you can't then grow the journalism end of it. So I think it's important for both sides to fully understand. To the question, what is the business of journalism? It has, first of all, been very challenged for a couple of decades at least. It used to be that it was 100% based on advertising revenues, whether you're a newspaper or a radio station or a TV station. And then subscriptions, they're a small but important part of it. And when digital came along a couple of decades ago, 
it really upended the model because most media organizations mistakenly thought that if you give it away and just grow the audience, then you might be able to grow the advertising uh, part of it. What none of us realized was that on in digital, supply is infinite. And the barriers to entry are not that high. In print, you have to have a printing plant before you start a new newspaper to compete. In digital, it doesn't take that much. So supply became infinite. As a result, the idea that if you grow your audiences, your advertising revenue will grow actually didn't turn out to be right. So it took a long time for the news industry to recover. I still don't think in large parts of the world it has. Uh, so now the business of journalism would be hope for the right kind of organizations, many different ways of monetizing, right? Clearly, advertising is still important. Subscriptions, both digital and in print, are still pretty important. But also creating new ways, I mean, podcasts, right? Get a sponsor for the podcast that creates revenue opportunity. Events has become a pretty large opportunity for media companies where you can use your curation power and people are willing to sponsor or pay to attend. So lots of different ways to think about media revenues, but very few people are succeeding in a way that makes you feel like they have figured out the model. Yeah. Do you think that profitability and monetization, are these, what's the relationship between these and creativity? Because in journalism, I feel like you get this very strange phenomenon recently where the profit-oriented outlets are the ones who seem to constantly be fighting fires, fighting for their survival. And the ones that maybe are non-profit or don't have to worry so much about the state backed or things like that, I mean, they seem to just be permanent fixtures in the news landscape. I mean, that may not necessarily be the case on the back end, but it's certainly the perception that I think a lot of people have. The BBC is here forever. And in the Middle East, the trend in the industry is definitely more towards state funding, public funding, rather than private companies trying to do a news startup. But it seems counterintuitive that you would think the most creative outlets or the ones that are going to go far are the ones who are driven by profit and within the private sector. But what do you think about that? It depends on how you look at it or what region, I guess, right? If you ask somebody what are the biggest news brands on earth, you're right. BBC will always come up, state-funded in some ways, actually funded by every individual who has a TV license in the UK. And that model, I think, has by and large worked fairly well for them. I'm not sure they have enough resources to do all the innovation that they can do. But if you ask people what are the biggest news brands, I wouldn't be surprised if the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times right, are all in the top five or six. And every one of them is for profit. I think the for-profit, non-profit prism, so I'm a capitalist at heart, so I actually like for-profit. I've all mostly worked only in for-profit. But I think it's a, not necessarily the right prism. The way to look at it is that, are you generating enough revenue to sustain growth without needing to constantly raise money, whether it's raising through the markets or whether it's raising through donations and all of that. So I think the danger with nonprofit sometimes is that if you don't worry about how you're deploying capital, um, then you may not do things that sustain what you're doing and let it grow because you always want to depend on a handout. So I think the way to think about it is like, irrespective of the source of capital, right? 
Are you using it the right way? And are you creating enough value with your product that the consumers are saying, you know what, there's a good value exchange. I'm willing to support you, right? Whether it's like a subscription, a donation, any of those ways. So I think that would be a better way to think about it because I do want people who run media companies to say, if we are creating enough value and if people are willing to pay for it, then even if I have a healthy corpus of funding from the government or from nonprofits, this is what I would use to expand, right? If I have 10 podcasts, maybe I'll do 20. It's hard to do that in an environment where you're not generating enough sustainable revenue. So that's how I'm thinking about it. I'm, I also, I think in the U.S. in particular, there is this belief that local journalism is pretty much dead, the for-profit one, and the only answer for that is nonprofits. The challenge with that is that nonprofit money also sometimes comes with a lot of strings. So, Meanwhile, if you are actually generating value to a community or a local set of readers and you're helping make their lives, informing them, engaging them, giving them news they can use, I think there is a willingness to pay. One of the nice things that's happened in the last decade is all of the <coughs> streaming entertainment, I think, has caused a pro the propensity to pay to really prevail globally. Um, in India, people pay a lot of money for Hotstar and uh, cricket, uh, IPL, and those kind of things. People are willing to pay for the Netflix of the world and you know, all of that. So if we can leverage that model to say, if I'm providing you interesting, giving you news, but that in itself is usually not enough, but I'm giving you lots of other things that are creating a bundle of value, and I'm, would you be willing to pay for it? I think most people would. So I'm actually a fan of selling things, uh, but not necessarily fussed about the for-profit versus non-profit. One of the stories that intrigues me a lot in media right now is what's happening with Vice. So there's this idea out there that Vice maybe hasn't done so well recently because their core audience in the West has aged out. They're, they're sort of getting older and moving on to other things, or maybe they're just not as lucrative a market, and Vice is a, an outlet geared towards young people. And Vice has actually done a lot of focusing on the Middle East in recent years, in part because there are so many young people here. I mean, this is one of the youngest markets in the world. Do you think that there's going to be a greater trend of Western media outlets looking towards uh, not just the Middle East, but other emerging markets, maybe just because it's so populous here, it's so urbanized, it's so young, or do they need more than that to thrive in a market? Yeah, but let's talk about Vice first, right? I filed for bankruptcy and tiny valuation compared to what they raised money at. I think Vice is, you're right, Vice was, did an amazing job in being able to convince a lot of big brands and advertisers that they can engage younger audiences. And they did it very creatively. Right? But I think the fatal flaw there was to bet all of your audience growth and engagement on others, as in social media, right? whether it's like YouTube or any of these. And then it became a question of what I would call too many branches and not enough roots. 
as in they didn't build that loyalty. It was always about that shiny new thing that somebody sponsored and they did it and they kept doing it. But when the money ran out, right, then the audience went away. And I think the platforms that they depended on to create audience, and same thing with BuzzFeed News too, right? Pioneers in doing things in a very different way. So I think there are very unique circumstances there. It's unfortunate that they raised and dissipated so much money because I think it's had a fallout on the ability for more uh, sensible media companies, more long-term media companies to actually be able to do that because of the uh, negative effect of BuzzFeed News or uh, Wise. The idea that like Western media brands would look to other parts of the world is not necessarily new, and I was both guilty and uh, a party to that, right? Uh, for example, most Western brands uh, look at India and say, wow, big audience already coming to our website and English language audience. Why don't we just create something for them and grow that, and then we'll be able to somehow make... It's never really worked out. So I think the business end of that argument has not really fully succeeded, even if you can get the eyeballs to the parent side. And why is that? For a couple of reasons. One is that the reason why, if I were in India, I was coming to the Wall Street Journal was because I was interested in the topics the Wall Street Journal was covering. But the moment you look at that and say, I'm going to create an India ghetto, if you will, then I'm saying, wait, I, first of all, I didn't come to you for that. And by the way, I have a hundred choices in India that cover India so much better than the five Wall Street Journal reporters would do that, right? So New York Times, Wall Street Journal, we all tried with India Inc., India Real Time, and none of them actually worked, right? They all are done. I think the way to think about audiences, particularly in the Middle East, is that, as you said, young, by like a mile, right? And it's going to be that way demographic-wise for a long time. Despite the disparities in the region, large parts of it are very wealthy and affluent and can afford to invest in devices or the things that you would need to engage with digital media brands. Both very curious about what's happening in the world, right? And wanting to know that, but also embracing a lot of like culture and all of that in, in, in the Middle Eastern context. So I think you can build that audience. The challenge would be, can you build a business around it? Because while the Middle Eastern media brands uh, may not be that well known globally, they're all still pretty significant locally, right? I mean, take the national, for example. I think your premise is that you're going to explain the Middle East to the world, right? But you also cover it for, for the Middle East, and you do it in a broad way that's very hard for somebody coming from the outside to match. Right? So you will only be able to do a piece of that if you want to do that. So I think it makes for a, a the business end of it is much more challenging. The audience end of it less so because audiences, thanks to digital, are very promiscuous because they can pretty much go anywhere they want at the click of a button, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're willing to give you two of the most valuable things an audience can give you. One, money, right? Pay for it. And two, their time. If they're not willing to give you more than, let me watch this cool documentary that I'm, I heard about from Vice, but then the rest of your time you're doing other things and not necessarily going back to them, then 
wives will be in a position of constantly having to do the new to bring the people back. So how are you building loyalty? How are you building repeat audience? And that requires significant local presence and coverage and breadth that I think most Western media brands still can't afford to from a business point of view. Yeah. Is it the case that these days you just you need the internet everywhere in order to have an information market? Or can you have one in places like Sudan or Chad or Syria where the internet access is very limited, at least for now? Yeah, so in my my non-day job, I'm on the board of Wikimedia, which runs the global Wikipedia, and which has, is available in like anywhere on earth in like hundreds of languages. And we find that the kind of access people have and the kind of devices that they have actually does make a difference in consumption. Meaning that if you if you don't have a smartphone or if you have a plan that is like fixed minutes and all of that, you can see the big difference between consumption of Wikipedia there versus... So the solution has been to create some Wikipedia in a box kind of offline solutions as well. But it is a clear limiting factor. But I think we... Those of us in media, by nature, are skeptical of everything. And I think we are more pessimistic than we perhaps ought to be. The way I think about media is that it was only in the last, I don't know, four or five years ago that 50% of the world's population got on the internet on a daily basis. Now it's probably around 60 65%. But what that means is that there are probably 3 billion more people who are going to be coming onto the internet on a regular basis in the next, let's say, five, 10 years, because the costs of the internet are falling and all of that. So the demand for what media creates is amazingly still out there. Right? Imagine three billion more people will be consuming, right? Sure, when they come on the internet, doesn't mean they're going to read news all day, but many of them will, right? So if you look at it that way, it feels like much of the growth, much of the opportunity is outside the Western world, but it's still there in a, there's a significant potential for that. To your question about, think about from a region point of view, I'm actually, again, a bit more optimistic about the Middle East as a region because I'm starting to see the region actually much more cohesively act like a region than I've ever seen before. And flexing um, both a political and a cultural uh, muscle in a little bit more unified way. Uh, for example, in the last couple of years, if you look at what's happening with geopolitics, I don't think anybody can say the Middle East is like marching to like the old models of like pro-West or pro, right? They're making decisions that are like what matters to us and sometimes causing friction, obviously, and becoming what in the 50s used to be called as non-aligned. India and a few other, South Africa were leaders in that, but they haven't really capitalized on it. I feel like the Middle East is doing that. So that actually makes me feel like, from a media point of view, having a Middle East voice that radiates out to the world, is I think we're going to see much more of that is my bet. It could take, obviously, some countries could take the lead in it. It also is being driven by, I think, as you said, uh, 
young demographics where I think there is a lot of both aspiration and a lot of pride and in lots of countries' resources to execute on that. So I think the opportunity to create more pan-Middle Eastern media brands, I think, feels like a lot more now than five, ten years ago. And then also have a voice that is not being reflected by the BBC's coverage of the Middle East, but is actually an authentic voice that's coming out. And may not necessarily, I mean, there's lots of differences still, but I feel like those differences are being bridged in a much faster way. And that feels like it lends itself to a much more robust media that's coming out of here. I have, In my time looking at it, I've always thought that despite resources, a lot of Middle Eastern media, when it came to embracing tech and new things, we're always looking out to the West, but we're also not really fast followers. I have a feeling that part is going to change, that you may still need to, I mean, the world still looks to Silicon Valley for generative AI, right? I mean, that's where it's happening. But the speed with which you can adapt it um, and do something about it, I think is now that much easier and faster. And again, even within the Middle East, we were talking earlier, if I'm sitting in Baghdad or Khartoum, I may not be necessarily thinking, oh my God, generative AI, what is it going to do to me? Right? The more pressing matters. But if, the, if my other hypothesis that there's going to be a more robust like Middle Eastern media that reaches these places, then you don't have to solve for it sitting in that city. But if the applications of this are reaching you, then that's a good thing too. I wonder about this because you have a situation in the region where places like the UAE and Oman and Kuwait, and I mean the whole Gulf really, it's almost universal internet access in these places. But in Iraq, Syria, Palestine, Sudan, the situation is very different. And I don't know how far away universal internet access for these places is. And when you talk about creating a sort of pan-regional voice in media, uh, I wonder if it really will be pan-regional um, because there are so many voices that maybe won't be heard um, because of that disparity. But do you think that, based on what you've seen about how the internet tends to spread in emerging markets. Do you think that is a long-term problem? Are places destined to get left behind? Or is this? are you confident that this could be solved? And if, if you're measuring not being left behind as having native large media entities, then you're probably right, right. Not every country is going to get there. But the way I'm looking at it is that if access, even with constraints, the ability to look at the same TikTok video that the national generates on an interesting topic anywhere in this region with not a lot of difficulty, then it, it is still reaching the audiences that may not have direct access to all of the technologies that we are talking about. So I'm less worried about that because I think the ability for people anywhere on this planet to actually serendipitously both find and engage with is only getting better and better. There will be moments when 
especially perhaps in the Middle East, which has been prone to it, like major wars will like prevent that in the short term. But the long-term cyclical trend is that there's only going to be cheaper and more access. So I'm less worried about the haves and the have-nots in terms of their ability to actually consume something. I want to talk a little bit about the scarier side of technology and the media. A lot of ink has been spilt, or I suppose digital ink, about social media and the sort of tendency towards sensationalism that's now overtaken the media, particularly in more advanced technology markets like North America and Europe, where you now have a a more polarized world, a lot of people would say, because of social media and because of the sort of clickbaitification of the sector. And now you have another sort of scary monster entering the picture in the form of AI and disinformation. Now with this region, I mean, earlier we were saying it's not as plugged in as other parts of the world yet. Does that mean that there is an opportunity here to avoid the evils that have come out of technology in other parts of the world, or has a bullet been dodged, or is all of that coming in the Middle East? It's just a matter of time. Is it inevitable? The advantage of being behind the curve, especially when it comes to technology, is that you get to see all of the problems that are that it's causing among the early adopters. So if you see that and still not take advantage of it, then it's less about the technology, it's more about the people making the decisions. I'll go back to, again, uh, a country that I'm familiar with, which is India. They saw what was happening to advertising for 20 years. And most media companies' response in India was, but India is different. They never really built subscription models. It's only in the last couple of years, actually, that has begun. So then you feel like you really wasted a decade, right? So I think there's an opportunity to do two things. One is for the private sector media companies to see what's working. and But you have to be also fast followers, right? You can't cede the advantage. But the second part is the biggest problems with technology have been less to do with how media use it. It's been more to do with regulation, right? Both around privacy and around the harm it could cause. And this is where governments potentially have an advantage of saying, this is how it's playing out in, let's say, the US. This is what the FCC is doing, or this is what the EU is doing. The regulation also seems to be sometimes not great. So can we then take the learning to create better policies? Because as we have realized, I think leaving it up to the tech companies to solve for the wicked problems that they create, and wicked problem is actually a technical term, um, of a problem that becomes so big that they can't solve it themselves. So regulation has to play a role, and how you do that and whether you can do it smartly can sometimes be easier if you're watching a bunch of other regulators try it and succeed and not succeed. Right? Then you can hopefully come up with a more hybrid, better policy. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think there's a lot of fear in the Middle East of what technology can do to the information space and what it can do to society as a whole. Do you think 
given your experience in the Western media market and also just in general, do you think on balance there is cause for concern or for optimism? I mean, it's hard to look at technology in the broadest possible sense, but let's pick the topic du jour, which is generative AI. There it does it feels like it's good to be cautious, but not to the point of not experimenting with it, right? And but also asking upfront the questions about what are the ethics here? Are you disclosing the data sets that are being used? For example, most AI in the world is trained on Wikipedia because it's an open source. Anybody can scrape it, and most of it's trained. But if you don't recognize that Wikipedia, because of just the lack of articles on women, for example, globally, because Wikipedia doesn't create content, right? It cites content. And as a result, only about 18, 20% of the people profiles on Wikipedia are women. But if you train your AI on that, then the AI might think that's okay. So how do you make sure that the data sets that you're feeding into the AI um, don't come in with this understanding that the data itself is flawed, right? So I think that's where asking the questions up front and aggressively and asking them to open their data sets and so you understand what it is, is valid. But it's worth experimenting rather than waiting for it to become something more solid and more profound and then embracing it because technology does move pretty quickly and you have the possibility that a generation of young people in the Middle East don't have the ability to play with it because of some government like restrictions in the fear of what it might do. So having the ability to experiment with it and with some guardrails I think is good rather than waiting for it to be fully baked. I just have one more one more question for you. So I think in your current job leading publishing at McKinsey, you deal a lot with the big ideas shaping the world. And I just want to know, what do you think is the big idea that will shape how this region works in the next decade? Yeah, so the big idea in my mind is more conceptual than like a specific piece of technology or anything, which is that focusing on unique differentiation versus better sameness. What I've seen mostly in regions that are trying to catch up is that this notion of like, we will do it better, but it's the same, right? So what is the unique differentiation uh, for this region, right? Demographics, globally, right? I mean, there are a few other, look, Africa and a few other places are, still have a lot younger population in some ways, but that's a huge strength. The other area where I think that, and I now think of from a content point of view, right? This whole area of sustainable, inclusive growth. I actually, in some ways, think there's no better region than this region for a couple of things. One is around the uh, impact that climate change is going to have in from just livability point of view and needing to do something about that. But two, a lot of the economic backbone of this region is central to how we will address climate issues in the future, right? At McKinsey, uh, we are often accused of, if you believe in climate change and uh, environment and all that, why are you working with some of the biggest polluters in courts in the world? And our response is that if you don't work with 
the biggest problem area, how are you going to solve for anything, right? You could work on the fringes of something, but if you don't work with mining, if you don't work with petrochemicals, if you don't work with uh, oil and gas, how are you going to actually then address the r- real fundamental issues? So I have a feeling that this region has the ability to create content, talk about issues that are global, but in a way that's like real, really unique and differentiated. And that alone could create like enough ability to have a voice at the table, first of all, but have like very healthy conversations within the region as well. So my advice would be that like, rather than take generative AI and look at a bunch of people and saying, I'm going to throw more resources into it because I can afford to, and we'll do something marginally better than the others. To take that and say, what is it that we can do that's uniquely different to this region? And then double down on that, right? So this concept of not better sameness, but unique differentiation. Again, it's not like a specific tool or a technology, but if you apply the principle and ask that question, I was looking at a bunch of your newsletters, and one of your newsletters is, I may not be pronouncing it right, Beshara, right? Which is like about positive news, but I actually think of it more as solutions journalism, right? That it's about impact and saying we're writing about things that are actually changing. So to me, that's like a very fun, interesting, different way of presenting something to the world from this region, right? And saying it's about solutions journalism, not about happy news. So things like that are, to me, feel like they're not just better something, but actually uniquely different. That's it for this episode. Please remember to listen to the other episodes of the Big Ideas edition of this podcast. This episode was produced by Dafarid, Arthur Edison, and Phil Green. And I'm your host, Suleiman Hakimi.